Today we're going to be bringing, uh, this is uh, Dan Zhang with, uh, coming up with Subversity here on KUCI. Um, today we're going to bring you a uh, new program, uh, a new uh, edition of Subversity. Uh, we're going to focus on the 60 years of, uh, of um, the um, history of uh, existence of the intelligence agency, the CIA. And uh, we'll be uh, making, um, bringing you an analysis. Uh, usually I don't talk about my own life, but uh, this is a um, unique situation. And we're going to be taking a look back at what uh, happened uh, in uh, my lawsuit. Uh, I filed a lawsuit uh, against the CIA. Um, back in um, the 90s um, because I had thought uh, that they might be spying on me because I was working with a publication uh, called uh, Covert Action Information Bulletin. And that was a um, publication that was critical of the CIA uh, of its covert action abuses um, that were ordered by the president. And so we looked at, um, we would um, run articles on who they thought were um, doing bad things around the world. And um, I was the indexer for the publication. I indexed the first, uh, first 12 issues of the magazine. And that obviously came to the attention of the authorities, which didn't like the magazine, and also wondered why somebody with the Asian surname was um, working on this magazine. And so we'll be bringing you um, an interview that uh, was um, taped for broadcast. Um, it was broadcast recently on a fellow show um, of a fellow KUCI radio host, uh, Mari Frank, a lawyer who does a piracy, privacy piracy show here on KUCI. And she interviewed me and my lawyer of the time, at the time of my case, Kate Martin. Kate directs the Center for National Security Studies in Washington, D.C. She's defended um, inmates at Abu Ghraib and other places. And back in the 90s, she was with the ACLU also. And she was one of my attorneys. She was the lead attorney um, together with a bunch of other attorneys uh, who defended my Privacy Act suit against the Central Intelligence Agency. And so we're going to go to our interview, um, an interview where she talks about um, this case. I am so excited tonight. We have a fabulous show. First of all, you know, just a few weeks ago, we got to know a bunch of the PA hosts here at KUCI, and I got to know a great guy named Dan Sung. Sang. <laughs> if I could say his last name, I'd be even better. Close. That was close. Yeah. And anyway, he was, we were all sitting around talking, and he told me this incredible story about what happened to him and about this fabulous attorney who represented him against the CIA. And I asked him if he'd be on the show, and I was so thrilled that also his attorney, all the way from Washington, D.C., agreed to be on the show. So let me introduce both of them and tell you, and then we're going to get started with both of them, with Dan right here in the studio. Thank you, Dan, for coming. And, and for Kate, all the way in Washington, D.C. So let me just first start out with Dan. Dan Sang is a researcher, radio talk show host, and privacy advocate. He... Um, he is one of our special, wonderful, longtime DJs as well here at KUCI. He hosts the show Subversity every Monday morning from 9 to 10 a.m., which you must not miss. And um, Dan is also UCI's Asian American Studies Politics and Economics Bibliographer. He runs the Social Science Data Archives at the University of California, Irvine. I bet you didn't know that, Lloyd. Since 1993, he has hosted his show, Subversity, a long time. This is a great public affairs show, and for many years he covered civil unliberties for the Orange County Weekly. 
He has written op-ed pieces for the Los Angeles Times on First Amendment issues. He's co-founded the Asian American United in Philadelphia and the Alliance Working for Asian Rights and Empowerment right here in Orange County. He successfully sued the CIA for spying on him. The case Sang versus CIA was settled out of court with a promise from the CIA never to spy on him again. He studied government at the University of Redlands and political science and library science at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And he was a Fulbright research scholar in Vietnam in 2004. So we have a top celebrity sitting here right with us. And then also I'm going to introduce right now, because we're going to go back and forth with both of these wonderful celebrities. We're also going to introduce Kate Martin. Since 1992, Kate Martin, um, an attorney, has been the director of the Center for National Security Studies, which is a nonprofit human rights and civil liberties organization in Washington, D.C. Kate Martin has taught strategic intelligence and public policy at George, uh, Georgetown University Law School and also served as general counsel to the National Security Archive, which is a research library located at George Washington University. And she did that from 1995 to 2001. Since 1998, uh, 1988, she has litigated and testified before Congress on the entire range of national security and civil liberties issues. In fact, I had the opportunity to read some of her testimony. Very impressive. She has many publications, and I just want to go further that previously she was a partner with Washington, D.C. law firm of Nussbaum, Owen, and Webster, and she graduated from the University of Virginia Law School. Hey, I was there, Charlottesville, Virginia, um, where she was a member of Law Review, and she graduated from Pomona College. You can learn more about the Center for National Security Study at our website and also at www.cnss.com. Dot org, O-R-G. So, Kate, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you for having me. Well, this is really thrilling. So, Dan, Dan is sitting here taking pictures. <laughs> I'm going to tell him to put the camera down. And, Dan, tell me, why don't you tell us a little bit about what happened to you and, and how you got Kate involved, and then we'll ask her about some of the legal issues. Uh, actually, the I was working with a magazine that uh, actually is critical of the CIA and covers... Um, covers his activities, especially its kind of uh, bad activities. And so I thought maybe uh, the, the CIA must have a file on me. So I actually wrote a Freedom of Information Act, Privacy Act request for anything they had on me. And uh, they wrote back and said it was, uh, they couldn't release anything because it was national security. Uh-oh. <laughs> and so I was kind of stumped. But the uh, ACLU has actually um, um, a booklet that... Um, shows you how you can appeal denials. So I did appeal, I thought, but then when I appealed it, they said, that's when they told me that I couldn't get it because of national security. And so uh, I figured that I had to go to court. Uh, but the ACLU booklet, the manual, also had a form you could fill out to file a sample uh, lawsuit. And so I actually just wrote my own lawsuit. I had a friend uh, who was a lawyer, and her secretary wasn't there that day, so I could use her computer and had the formatting on the paper for the paper on her uh, computer printout, I guess, on her computer uh, printer. And so I could actually design the form, and I just copied it from this manual, and I said I'm a P, uh, you know, I'm uh, filing this under the whatever. Freedom of information. And, and, and privacy, yeah. actually a privacy act, oh, because right. it applies to an individual, so it's a privacy act uh, right. lawsuit. And then when they started coming back with all these deadlines saying that I had to meet, otherwise they would toss out the case, mm. I freaked out. And yeah. I, I started looking for a lawyer. So how did you find Kate? Uh, I actually found it circuitously. I, 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 uh, at first, the ACLU wasn't interested. But then they said, well, maybe you should talk to somebody in Washington because this is kind of a national security case. And so, so I was able to contact her. Uh, and then the ACLU locally uh, in LA also took on the case together with her. Okay, Kate, now tell us, um, tell us first of all, the goals of your organization. Well, the center has been around for more than 30 years, actually, and was founded uh, in the aftermath of the revelations about CIA and FBI spying on Americans. Mm. That were, all of those revelations were documented and the misdeeds 
in what's called the Church Committee Report, which I commend to everyone to read. And then there was this period in the 70s where Congress undertook to uh, outlaw lots of the abuses by the intelligence agencies. And the center was founded to work on all of those issues, to basically to stop FBI spying and CIA misdeeds. And so uh, we were, for many years, uh, a project of the ACLU and another organization. Kind of unique. We had a kind of unique relationship with the ACLU. And then in uh, the mid-'90s, we left the ACLU because we wanted to do some work with human rights advocates overseas in Eastern Europe and Latin America in order to help kind of establish a legal regime to put under control the, the remnants of what had been the KGB and the secret police in that part of the world and, and the, military police, uh, the military intelligence agencies in Latin America. So we've done uh, national security classification issues, government surveillance of Americans issues, um, all of those issues for all of those years. And since September 11th, of course, we've been really busy right. because there's been this tremendous assault on civil liberties. So Dan's case uh, was many years before September 11th was, was very is still very relevant to what's going on today. Let's talk a little bit about Dan's case, because his was back, what, in the late 90s, right? What was it, 1998 or something? Was that when your case, or what was it, Dan? It was earlier. Uh, mm -hmm. but, uh, 1993? I, mean, it was, uh, I filed it in the early 90s, yeah. Right. And I didn't want them to spy on me, and uh, because I realized that there was a law that prohibited spying on political activists. Uh, the Privacy Act, which still exists, the USA Privacy U.S. Privacy Act, right? Uh, actually, forbids uh, retention or collection or retention of any material relating to First Amendment protected activities of not just citizens but also permanent residents. Right, the the secret databases. So let's let's talk about these legal issues. So, when Dan came to you, how did how did you end up with this case, and and what were the thoughts that you had at the time? Well. Um, we got lots of requests for help, and most people, we were very small, and we couldn't help very many people. But Dan, who had, as a layperson, drafted a great complaint against the CIA. <laughs> and really? <laughs> it was, and I could not believe that the CIA was doing this, because what had happened is the CIA had spied on uh, anti-war protesters during the Vietnam War. And that had come out, and there had been a big scandal about it. And the then CIA director had basically said, we shouldn't have done that, and we agree we won't do it anymore. And then, as Dan mentioned, in 1978, they passed the Privacy Act. And the Privacy Act prohibits intelligence agencies like the CIA from keeping information on Americans' political activities. And Dan came along. And the CIA had a file on him, and he didn't work for the CIA, and he had no connection to the CIA. And so they had no excuse for having a file on him. And not only did they have no excuse for having a file on him, but they had a file on him for a flagrantly unconstitutional reason. And that was because he had worked on the magazine that he mentioned, and that magazine was Covert Action Bulletin, right, Dan? Covert Action Information Bulletin, yeah. Now, uh, later, it was called Covert Action Quarterly. And that magazine was extremely critical of the CIA. And so, basically, the CIA was keeping tabs illegally on uh, Americans who were critical of the agency. And so that was, that case and the issues presented were at the core of what we worked on and what we tried to fight for. Actually, the first article in my file was a review I did of anti-surveillance magazines, including COVID Action, for a library <laughs> journal. So that was actually a, 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 like a magazine review section I did for library journals, which is a Bauka publication. So that was the first thing in my file. Right. 
So tell us about the the Privacy Act and how it came into being, because that really is kind of the core of this, right? And and let's talk about the Privacy Act, because it sure doesn't seem to have um, much uh, effectiveness right now. Can you tell us about a little bit more about it, Kate? Sure. The Privacy Act uh, was passed in 1974, I'm sorry, not 78. Yeah, 74. In 74, and Senator Sam Urban, one of the great heroes of the Congress, there's nobody like him in the present Congress, (laughs) was the author. And it's interesting because if you go back and read the history of the Act, what they were worried about was that the government would be able to use its new computer capabilities to compile dossiers on people. And there are these great quotations in the history of the Privacy Act where Irvin and others say that every time the government learns a little bit more information about one of its citizens, you lose a little freedom. And so the Privacy Act was an effort to restrict the collection of information on Americans and how much information could be computerized and kept. But unfortunately, because obviously the government has to have lots of information on lots of people and for some very good reasons, you know, ranging from, you know, the names of people who get Medicare benefits to the names of people they're investigating for crimes and the witnesses to such crimes, et cetera, is that the Privacy Act ended up being a very complicatedly written statute. And while its goals were great, I'm not sure over time that it was very effective in achieving them. The only real victory that I've ever had with the Privacy Act was in Dan's case. Right. <laughs> so, so they, in other words, if, if I understand also in the, the Privacy Act is that there weren't supposed to be any secret databases, correct? I mean, there would be databases, but they weren't supposed to be secret. You were supposed to be able to see what was in those databases if you were in those databases. Am I correct? Yes, Kate? but there were some narrow exceptions. Right, for example, law enforcement and things yes, like that. Yeah, like the FBI had a, uh, could keep secret who it was investigating while it was investigating them, yes. Right. But they right. couldn't collect stuff on First Amendment protected activities. And I remember in court, uh, the judge was kind of upset. Uh, we had one court hearing that I attended, and the judge was saying he would be upset if, the, if I was at a political demonstration and there were files kept on that. Right. So, so what happened? You took the case. He had filed the, the lawsuit, and you took the case. So what happened then? I think the, in the beginning, uh, didn't they, they said, Dan, when you were still pro se, that they couldn't release anything in the file. Right. Right? And couldn't tell me the, even the date of the documents uh, because I, would, uh, I could figure out where I was. <laughs> Uh, so I had to get, go through a lawsuit to get, to get even the dates. And that was, you know, that was outrageous on the part of the government because what they figured was, oh, he's representing himself, so we'll get away with this. And the law is very clear that they have to give you the information in your file unless it's classified information. And if it's classified, they have to give you everything. You know, they have to redact the parts. Right. And so the first thing that we fought over was whether or not he would get his file. And as soon as I, as soon as I and the other ACLU lawyer show up in the case, they're like, oh, right, we, we will give you <laughs> most of what we've had in the file on you. Right. And so then I've forgotten, Dan, whether or not we had a fight to get the rest of it and whether finally we didn't get quite all of it, but most of it, right? Well, they wouldn't give it to us until we settled. I couldn't get anything, basically. They did do the redactions because of John Wiener's case over the uh, John Lennon's file. That was a precedent. They had to redact each section, but then give a summary of it. So that was a fight over that, whether they would give us any summaries. Did they give you any summaries? They, they did, or uh, one sentence for whatever it was about, and then eventually they gave us. But even in the documents, they, they called me David at one point, when <laughs> my name is actually Daniel. So we were trying to figure out what the file was about and why the file had been set up on him. And then it became more and more clear that 
the file had been set up on him because they deemed him to be a critic of the CIA. Mm. And as Dan mentioned, the Privacy Act has this, you know, it's meant to prohibit secret databases. It's meant to limit how much information the government can collect. It gives people a right to, collect, to correct their files. Right. But then it has this very specific protection that says the government may not collect information about the First Amendment activities of individuals, except if necessary for law enforcement purposes. Right. And were they trying to say that there was some law enforcement purpose for collecting Dan's information? Well, that was very interesting because it turned out that the CIA lawyers and the bureaucracy had basically been paying no attention to this part of the law. And they were kind of surprised. <laughs> the, they had the file. They were surprised. You know, it's like one hand doesn't know what the other hand's doing. Exactly. They don't know how they are interpreting the law. So initially they say, oh, yes, we're a law enforcement agency. But, in fact, the law could not have been clearer that the CIA was not a law enforcement agency. <laughs> and, in fact, the CIA charter says that the CIA shall have no law enforcement functions inside the United States. Right, because that's the FBI, right, and the Secret Service. Exactly. And, and that prohibition on being law enforcement agency was put in by President Truman uh, to protect civil liberties so that, in his words, you know, the CIA wouldn't turn into the Gestapo. Right. So we ended up having kind of extensive discussions with the lawyers for the CIA, which it was interesting because at that time, unlike now, they were willing to sit down with us and actually talk to us, and we discuss our view of why the law prohibited them from doing it, and they would answer about their view. And it became clear that they did not feel that they had a tenable position to keep the file on Dan. Right. And so at that point, we start settlement negotiations. Now, you also, didn't you also, sorry, didn't, Kate, you also asked them to prohibit, uh, in terms of the settlement, prohibit spying on all Americans and permanent residents? Yes. So the settlement, what we said was, well, let's talk about when, if ever, you would be entitled to keep files on Americans' First Amendment activities. We said, basically, if someone, if an American was working for the CIA, then obviously the CIA can have a personnel file on them, and it might have information about their First Amendment activities. If, and then we also agreed that if the CIA was investigating someone as a potential spy, because when, for example, the CIA is worried that one of their people is spying, which has happened some fair number of times sure. over the last few sure. years. Sure. Um, they investigated along with the FBI, and they would look at whether or not there were other people not working for the CIA who were in league with the, the suspected spy. So we said, so if you suspect someone of espionage or or you have, you know, some reasonable basis to suspect someone, or someone is working for you, then you can keep First Amendment information on them. But otherwise, you can't. And they refused to agree to that in the settlement agreement. Hmm. What, what they did do, and I, I don't know, Dan, maybe you want to describe what they did agree to with regard to your file. They agreed to expunge the file and promised not to spy on me again. And they... And how did you know that that was really going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> actually, they were recruiting on campus a few years later, and the recruiter, actually, when I took a picture of him, he took out a camera and took a picture back of me. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a recruiter, not a spy, supposedly. But he was a CIA recruiter. Right. So what did you do about that? Did you did you tell them that, that there's a, an agreement that they can't spy on you? Well, I called Kate. 
<laughs> so what happened? Did that picture get deleted or what? You don't know? We don't know what happened. But we did have some discussions with them about how they were going to, in the future, know that they had this prohibition, right? And I've forgotten what the result of those was. Um, it was interesting because a few years, not that, before 2001, though, later, when the CIA had a website, they put up on their website, oh, right. remember, that yeah. they never kept files on Americans. Right. Which was so, you know, it was so weird because on the one hand, they wanted to tell the public, and they and the people putting it up on the website believed right. that they didn't keep files on Americans. Right, right. But the lawyers and the powers that be at the CIA were, oh, no, we're not going to agree never to keep files on Americans. And so we wrote a letter saying, well, that's not your legal position. Your legal position is that you are entitled to keep files on Americans, at least in these circumstances. And they, so they should changed. have been transparent about it and put it up on the website. Right, and so they changed their, uh, their website after we protested that. So does the website clarify under what conditions they will keep these files on Americans, you know, for, for law enforcement or for spying or if you work for the agency? I mean, does it actually say that? You know, my – do you remember, Dan, no, they what took it, it said? They, originally, they had said that we, they don't spy on Americans, and then you can uh, verify that fact by doing a Privacy Act request, <laughs> <laughs> which is what I had done. <laughs> but after Kate complained – uh, and it got reported in some of the media in Washington, uh, they actually just took out that section. So, so let me ask you something, Kate. Did, did, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, mediate, and I really believe in settlement, but sometimes I just wonder if you really need to have a case that has, you know, uh, the, the, the wording out there for everyone to see, you know, that you really need to have it adjudicated by a court to say these statements so it sets up precedent. Did you feel like that in his case? I mean, this is before 9-11, so you, you didn't know this craziness was coming now. But did you ever have that feeling that the settlement really wouldn't be, um, you know, a precedent? I felt pretty confident that they would abide by the settlement with regard to Dan. Right, right. Um, but, but it's such a huge issue for everybody, really. I mean, even, even us talking on this show right now, I don't know if they care about KUCI, but, you know, am I going to be spied on now because i got Dan sitting here and, and I'm talking to you, Kate? Do you know what I mean? Well, and, you know, it, it's, it's an interesting question. At the time, I was uh, pretty, pretty confident that, in general, the CIA did not care about Americans. That, you know, that they, the magazine that Dan had been associated with was associated with someone that they considered an actual traitor to the CIA. Mm. And that they had been, you know, that that was kind of a unique circumstance for them. I see. But, uh, on the other hand, if we could have had some fair uh, confidence that we would have won, we, I think we would have, Dan and I would have, seriously considered litigating for just the reasons you just said. I see. Is okay. to get that. But even before 9-11, it was very difficult to win a case against the CIA. I see. And I brought a very similar case against the FBI who was a law enforcement agency, but who had no good law enforcement reason for keeping the file on my client. And I lost the case before 9-11 in the Court of Appeals ah. on the grounds that they were keeping the information on him, not for law enforcement purposes, but for intelligence purposes. And you never know when it might be useful in the future. Oh, goodness. Oh, yeah, you got to keep all these databases because you never know. And isn't that what they're doing now? Myriad databases that they probably couldn't even find people when they need to find them because they've got so much on everybody. It's, it's insane. Well, that's right. And it's, the law at the moment is terrible because 
While the Privacy Act says you may not keep information except in the following circumstances, the way the courts have interpreted it, it's toothless. And so there's very little legal prohibition on them keeping files on Americans, and they are assiduously collecting as much information as possible to keep files on Americans. And most of that collection in the United States is done by the FBI and local law enforcement, et cetera. But after September 11th in the Patriot Act, one of the things the Patriot Act did, which is not talked about so much, is that it required the FBI to make its files on Americans available to and accessible to the CIA yeah. and the NSA and the White House even. And that, all in the name of information sharing, you know, that there hadn't been enough coordination mm. and right, et cetera, right. which was true. They did I mean, not that, coordinate. That's what the 9-11 Commission came up with, right, that, that there was no coordination. Right. right. But instead of looking at the question in any kind of reasoned way and saying, is there some targeted, focused information sharing that would be helpful to counterterrorism, what the Patriot Act just said was all information that was, quote, foreign intelligence information, which the definition of which is much broader than you would think and covers many activities by many Americans, all such information has to be shared by the FBI with the CIA, et cetera. And the other thing that's happened is that when we brought Dan's lawsuit, you know, they did not have full te text retrieval uh, capability in their databases. Hmm. Right. Right, because so basically they would file information, at least at the FBI, and maybe Dan at the CIA, but I think at the CIA even, that they'd file information, they'd have an inf they had a file on Dan. It was labeled Dan. It's an index, yeah, by my name. Yeah. Right. Right. But they couldn't basically do, you know, a Google search and look hmm. for Dan's name in every single document right. of the agency. Right. But now both the FBI and the CIA, if they don't have that capability yet, they're working on it. Well, not only that, you know, think about all of these data brokers that even if the government isn't collecting this information, you've got Axiom, you've got ChoicePoint, you've got LexisNexis, you've got these huge um, information brokers that are gathering this information and sharing it with the government. We know that. So right. that, you know, so if, if they d wanted to look up something on Dan or Mari or Kate or Lloyd or anybody right now, they could just get a huge data profile on us and and it would be very easy but i want to introduce you again because we're talking about such a critical issue and i want them to hear who these celebrities are that i'm speaking with and we are speaking with kate martin who is all the way from washington dc she is an attorney and the director of the center for national security studies and she was actually the uh the attorney who represented our own DJ and uh, privacy advocate himself, uh, Dan Sang, who is a researcher, radio talk show host, and he is the uh, host of Subversity, which is every Monday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. So let's, let's go back about that. What about the fact that we've got these huge databases that are being um, collected from private industry that is being shared with uh, government? Well, I think... That's a very big problem, and one of the, what I understand about the way that arrangement works is that they have an agreement with ChoicePoint, for example, where when the FBI wants to find out information about someone, it goes to ChoicePoint, and ChoicePoint gives them the information. So the effect of that is that the ChoicePoint database even is not governed by or subject to any of the Privacy Act rules. Nor, nor the Fair Credit Reporting Act. <laughs> right. Even though, um, in essence, the ChoicePoint database functions as an FBI database because the FBI can get access to it whenever it wants. Exactly. The, the other thing that happened in my case was that 
the CIA turned over my file to a foreign uh, intelligence agency uh, oh. as a result of the interrog interrogatories in my case. They admitted turning it over. So Who did they the, share it with, Dan? They didn't say what the agency. And that's what's partly why they didn't want to give us the dates because they thought we could figure out. Because ah. I was traveling in Europe. In the, we finally got the dates and I figured out I was traveling in Europe. But I didn't know what day, you know, what, I mean, what, what country ah. I was in. I mean, so that could have been, a, you could have been arrested when you get off the plane right. in some other country. So that was the scary part, that they were routinely turning, apparently turning it over to another agency, uh, even though they're not supposed to collect this stuff. So you, you didn't get that information? You still don't know today who, who they shared it with? It's uh, top secret. Uh, that was our interview, uh, or my interview, uh, with on another KUCI show. Uh, that aired uh, recently, but this show, uh, this uh, interview with me and Kate Martin, my lawyer at the time, was taped uh, in July. Uh, this is Dan Zhang with Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Uh, we're going to also bring you an interview with the attorney, um, Kate Martin, um, um, that we aired on this show uh, back in January 1998. Uh, when I wrote an op-ed in the early times about this case. Um, the excerpt we uh, aired earlier is from my KUCI colleague here at the station, um, Mari Frank, who does an excellent show called Pirates, Privacy Pirate, Pi Privacy Piracy, Pi uh, Privacy Piracy, and uh, that's... Uh, is another show that uh, looks at issues of privacy and um, she had um, interviewed us, uh, me and my uh, attorney Kate Martin from the Center for National Security Studies uh, back, in, uh, back in July. And so we'll be bringing you that uh, interview, uh, our interview with her uh, momentarily. Uh, we had an interview with uh, Kate Martin, uh, back in uh, 19, uh, 1998, and uh, we'll be, uh, let's see if we, we're going to bring you that interview in a sec. This is Dan Sung with Subversity, and now we're going to go to our interview back in 1998 with Kate Martin. Uh, I asked him what was the significance of the case. Uh, Kate, what do you think is the significance of my case? Well, Dan, in your case, what you uncovered was that the CIA was, in fact, keeping files on the First Amendment activities of Americans long after everyone thought that practice had been stopped. So you're saying the CIA doesn't follow the Privacy Act's prohibition? Right. What had happened was, of course, the CIA was engaged in widespread political spying in the 60s and the 70s, and then in the mid-70s, the Privacy Act was passed, and it prohibited the CIA from ke keeping any files on any First Amendment activities of Americans. And then it turns out in the late 80s that they start a file on you. The other thing that we uncovered in the case... Early, early 80s, actually. Yeah, okay. early 80s. 81, right. yeah. Ah, uh, so is we uncovered the practice, but we also uncovered what was not known, which was the bizarre and extreme interpretation of the CIA in reading the Privacy Act. Um, and what was that? Because we, well, you'll recall, we asked the CIA about how they could justify opening this kind of file on you, given the prohibitions of the Privacy Act, and their answer was, well, as long as we're doing quote, foreign intelligence, the Privacy Act doesn't apply to us. So they're saying even if it's domestic activity here of Americans, if, as long as they're doing what they call foreign intelligence, they can collect whatever they want. That's right. That's their legal position. And it seems that they don't have, in fact, any guidelines, internal guidelines in place about when they should or shouldn't collect information on Americans. What law, yeah, what law were they justifying? The, the National Security Act? Or? Yes, the CIA relies on the National Security Act to say that it basically trumps the Privacy Act. 
that interpretation has not been approved by any court and in my view is simply absurd. The National Security Act was passed in 1947 and the Privacy Act is meant as a prohibition on what the CIA can do. It was passed in the mid-70s. Do you know other cases like mine that you've uncovered of such kind of files? It's very hard to get a handle on what kinds of files the CIA is keeping on Americans. I have had some phone calls from people who say that the CIA has files on them. And it is clear to me, at a minimum, that the CIA doesn't have rules in place that would prevent it from having files on Americans. And it's also clear from some recent stories in the press that um, not only is CIA keeping files on some Americans, but the, then the National Security Council is asking the CIA for information from those files. This is a, you're talking about the Armenian Americans that were asked, that were the collected information about? The ones that were referred to in the LA Times story a couple of weeks ago. Right. Um, but that story implied that the CIA people that were interviewed were upset about this policy. Well, that story did quote some CIA, mostly ex-CIA officials, saying, oh, you know, the, the CIA policy is that we don't spy on Americans and we don't keep files on Americans. And that is kind of the general understanding. What was, um, you know, what we uncovered in your case was that while that's the general understanding of some of the, you know, thousands and thousands of employees who work at the CIA, in fact, it's not the CIA's legal position, it's not their practice, and if you go in and look at their internal rules, there aren't rules prohibiting them from keeping files on First Amendment activities of Americans. Does, does the, uh, you met with the CIA counsel, and did, did she say that, or, did, or are you getting that from... I mean, how do you know that? Well, in, the, in your lawsuit, we sent formal requests under the court rules oh. for copies of CIA regulations. And what we were given were basically, they said, well, the National Security Act and the executive order on collecting foreign intelligence, those constitute the guidelines. Um, then when we had a face-to-face -face discussion and ask for more specific guidelines because those guidelines are very general and don't go into when you can keep files and when you can't in any way that's useful. It, um, it, there, it appeared and it's, that there aren't any such guidelines. And in fact, it's, it's you know, it's uh, not, um, there's obviously some exceptions. You know, the CIA can keep files on its own employees. Right. Um, but the CIA's position was broader than what we advocated for. You know, we did settle your case, and we got an agreement from the CIA not to keep files on you and not to do surveillance on you. And, um, to, and to expunge my name from the the existing files. Right, right, to expunge all those existing files. But did they, they didn't agree to apply that to other people? No, they refused, in fact, to adopt the standard that we thought was required by the Constitution. And the standard that we think is appropriate is that unless the government has some evidence, some real evidence that an American is engaged in criminal activities, mm -hmm. not thinking about it, but actually engaged in some kind of crime, either espionage or terrorism, that they have no business having any information whatsoever. So the, web, the website says that now, oh, it says, use that as an example of what they can keep files on. The current CIA website uh, uh, seems to uh, say that uh, they can keep files on terrorists and um, people engage in espionage, but in a way it's kind of misleading because they they also uh, uh, told us that they can keep it on other reasons, right, for other reasons. Well, the, what, the website is very carefully worded. <clears throat> what it doesn't say is that those are the only situations when they keep files. Right. right. In our view, 
the only justification for ever keeping a file is hard evidence that someone is engaged in espionage or terrorism and doing so on behalf of a foreign government, only in that situation should the CIA have a file. And the website says, well, we have a file in those situations, but of course we might have files in other situations as well. And it's those other undefined situations that cause the problem that were the problem in your case, and it's the problem that the CIA hasn't addressed and that the I believe they're violating the Privacy Act in doing that. Do, do you think that Congress will act on this, or are you trying to get Congress to act on this? Or? Well, your case has been very useful in highlighting and bringing to public attention this problem. Um, you know, mm-hmm. something needs to be done. Do, uh, the other part of the case, I guess, that's in- interesting is the fact that it took so long to get anything. You know, the CIA used to say on its website, to utilize, to ask people to utilize the Privacy Act to find out if the uh, CIA has files on you. I did that, but I couldn't get anything until I filed a lawsuit and eventually settled. Um, I mean, are they, uh, I mean, are they following the guidelines of the Privacy Act to give out their stuff or that they have on you or the Freedom of Information Act? Well, you know, the Freedom of Information and the Privacy Acts have just been amended to say that if you ask for information about yourself, they're supposed to respond in some kind of timely fashion. Right. It's a perennial problem how long it takes to get the government to answer your request. But people who think that the CIA might have a file on them should make a request to the CIA in writing under the Privacy Act and, um, and push them. Do every, you know, follow up with letters, with phone calls, and say you want an answer. It's very hard to do anything about it until you get an answer from the CIA, and it could well take months and might even take years. This, they, the new rules say they are going to follow the 10-day limit and respond within 10 days. <laughs> they said because the, the Freedom of Information Act says 10 days, so we're going to follow that the new preliminary rules in the Federal Register. Yes, I would be very surprised if anyone got an answer in that kind of time period about whether or not the CIA had files. One of the things you might do if you want to send the CIA a letter is to say, please let me know as soon as possible whether or not you in fact have found something. And then if it takes you longer to review what you found to decide whether or not you're going to release it, that can be a second process, but let me know within the time periods required by the law, whether or not you, in fact, have a file on me. Can they... You could say that up front in your letter. Would they, uh, would they say, would they not say they have something, if they had something, if they think it's going to disclose something secret? I mean, for individual files, are they likely to do that, or do they have to tell you they have it? They have to tell you under the law whether or not they have a file on you. unless there's a couple of exceptions to that. But my view is that it's unlikely that they would deliberately lie to you about that issue because it is a violation of the law. It subjects the individuals doing the lie to a lot of serious sanctions. Um, It doesn't mean that it may not take a lot of work on a person's part to get them to answer. Mm. But the law is very clear that there's a couple of exceptions, but um, basically they're required to tell you whether or not they have a file on you are, under the Privacy Act. Are the exceptions if there's an ongoing investigation or something like that? Right. And those, the exceptions yeah. are for people who are the subject of, say, FBI criminal espionage investigations. Then the, obviously neither the FBI nor the CIA needs to tell you if they have an open investigation on you about spying for somebody, for some other country, then if you make a request, they're not going to tell you that they have a file on you. Yeah. That's, of course, not the kind of situation we're talking about usually. Yeah. You know, in my case, they actually turn over my uh, information to another foreign government. And, you know, from my reading of the Privacy Act, it, there's pretty strict rules about who can get information. You know, usually it's another government agency that's there has to be some regulation that says they can get information from another, from a separate agency. But 
How did how can they justify turning it over to a foreign government then? Well, this is the potential hole in the law for quote foreign intelligence. Mm. The CIA's justification is that if it's a matter of foreign intelligence to share information with another government, they are authorized to do that. And when they assert that kind of justification for foreign intelligence, it's very hard to get at it. So um, that wasn't. I mean, one, one could still argue that they are, they are violating the spirit of the Privacy Act, definitely, right? I mean, that... <laughs> oh, in my view, they violated the Privacy Act by turning it over. But, and by having the information and by turning it over. Their view is that the Privacy Act basically has a very large exemption for them in whatever they do. Oh, I see. That the court, in your case, never ruled on that. Right. I think our argument was much better supported by the law than their argument. But the court never resolved that problem because the CIA gave us what we wanted. My in file, by yeah. In settling the case. Basically, my file, yeah. Right, and an agreement to expunge the records and oh, an right. agreement not to keep the records on you in the future. Uh, you've also gone abroad to these emerging democracies in Eastern Europe to help uh, show up the uh, civil liberties kind of statutes. Um, especially making sure the police uh, work within uh, the law. Uh, what kind of advice do you give these, um, these uh, people over there? Well, we have this project where we work with um, NGOs, oh. uh, mostly in Eastern Europe and in Russia, on these kinds of questions. And the project is basically aimed at public education. Um, I think that one of the most crucial things to kind of establishing democratic processes and protecting those that are established is that people understand that they have rights and that they understand how to enforce those rights and that there's some public consciousness that the government has to obey the law and that even citizens, mere citizens, can um, insist that that happens. Now that's, of course, a reality in this country that's been, you know, is a lot more tradition yeah. and history supporting that reality here than there is in some other parts of the world. That was our interview uh, back in 1998 with Kate Martin of the Center for National Security Studies, who was my attorney when I, uh, in my case, uh, my Privacy Act case, Zhang versus CIA, uh, to get them to stop spying on my First Amendment protected activities. And earlier we listened to an uh, interview with Kate and myself on Mari Frank's Privacy Piracy, uh, here also on KUCI. And uh, that was aired earlier. Um, we had excerpts on this program. Uh, this is Dan Tsang with Subversity here on KUCI, 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show were not necessarily those of the regions of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. This is Dan Tsang with Subversity. The website is, d- is uh, KUCI.org slash tilde. D-T-S-A-N-G. Thanks for listening.